Hey, everybody. This is Adam Blake uh, with a new podcast on fatbike.com. Kind of an extension of the Ask Adam podcast, which is a little more technically uh, or technical in its nature. This one is much more about people or things that I've found in the industry that I am very fond of. Um, things that have inspired me, relationships that I've had the luxury of cultivating and uh, just sit down with some of these individuals and and really kind of dig deep into a conversation with them. Um, So for me, it was a pretty easy first guest idea. Uh, It's somebody who I've known for a long time, been really closely associated with in certain worlds lately, Um, a multifaceted person an accomplisher of great feats, uh, one of my brothers, uh, Steve Cannon, from Des Moines, or the Des Moines area, let's say, um, first Iowan finisher of the 1,000 Miles to Nome I did our odd race, uh, and all kinds of other stuff. Uh, hey, Steve, thanks for coming to my kitchen. What's up, man? That's a really wonderful introduction, and when you first said about going back, I always remember Really, our our first real meeting was in Sheraton. Sheraton, Iowa. Taking the wheel off the Team Bad Boy 50-gallon steel drum on the back, fixing a tire. And so, just uh, for whatever reason, that popped right into my head. Elaborate on that. People, you know, we're kind of in the rag bry bubble in Iowa. We're all keenly aware. But some people are, you know, especially that's a road event. Uh, People are not aware of that. Elaborate on, maybe touch on what that is, what Team Bad Boy stood for for a second. And when you say a 50-gallon drum on the back of a bike, that's no joke, you know. <laughs> Let's talk weights. Let's talk uh, things like that. And, and by the way, the first service is a spoke replacement for me on this bike. Yeah. We're, we're dealing with some things. I can't put that bike in the repair stand. Yeah, it's, uh, well, for anybody that doesn't know, Ragbri is the, I still think it, is the largest organized bike ride in the world. I believe that's accurate. 17,000-ish? Roughly estimated. Hard to get counts because people are on and off, things like that. But, yeah, roughly 17,000 is a pretty comfortable number. Come to ride their bike across Iowa, eat pie, enjoy the small-town friendly nature of folks here. Uh, It's an extraordinary event. And uh, I'm, uh, depending on the day, fortunate or unfortunate to ride with a group of guys called Team Bad Boy. And uh, I think, well, the original couple guys, they started doing this 30 years ago. I think it's 30, 25 for sure, plus. And uh, it's kind of, it has evolved from two guys that were having a, small hibachi grill on the back of one bike and then a uh, six-pack cooler on the back of the other bike to what is now uh, my bike is the grill bike and it it literally has a 55 gallon steel drum on the back that's been welded and hinged and is now really quite well seasoned and cooks up a hell of a steak so if you ever find us on the road uh, please come by I'd be happy to fire one up for you and then the uh, the six pack cooler has now become a hundred gallon, you know, three foot wide cooler that's on the back of his bike. And as you well know, we've went through uh, many different iterations of commercial racks, which 
whether it was Ragbri or going over Wolf Creek Pass on Ride the Rockies, have snapped and the bikes have done the same. So they're old beater mountain bikes that you can weld and they're steel racks on the back that mine, for example, my stepdad made for me. Then, uh, you know, if the, if the big bomb drops, you know, these bikes will, and the cockroaches will be the last things <laughs> left on earth. But so Adam and I, uh, met, uh, through, we were coming through Sheraton and, uh, as often happens, the bike with me on it weighs about 400 pounds. I'm 200 and the bike's about 200. So it's a pretty good fist fight. Uh, it's got a com- complete stereo on the front. It's, it's, uh, it's quite the carnival ride, but we've had great times on it. Uh, but uh, uh, even the heaviest of spokes <laughs> sometimes succumb to the pressure. So Adam was kind enough to get us in there. And uh, then you can only imagine what it's like uh, trying to put that into a bike stand. <laughs> I believe we had two guys just stand there and hold it. Yeah, because we it couldn't up. get it in the stand yeah. at all. You know, I, I couldn't physically lift it individually, and obviously, a foldable stand isn't going to support a two hundred pound bike. I remember, I remember thinking, "Yep, this is my kind of guy." Because you lit up like it was the first christmas that you'd ever attended when you saw that thing coming in you're like yeah that road bike there and that bike there they can wait not too often you get a chance to work on a 55 gallon steel drum (laughs) so we had a lot of fun and that's you know it feels like it feels like a year ago but i bet it's 20 you know i was trying to think 15 for sure i thought i thought 2009 which would only be 10 Uh, but i'd have to look at the rag bry and you know i I've done about 15 rag rides as a mechanic, so they it's tough to place yeah, things well, here and there. Yeah, well, maybe it's one of those rare things where, you know, I feel like it's 20 because, you know, you bore the hell out of me, and, you know, it's only been 10. But, right, dragging but, it yeah, on, huh? Just, <laughs> yeah, most definitely. That was, our, that was our first meet, man, and it's been it's been a, a friendship I treasure ever since. Most definitely. Uh, I, I look to you for a lot of uh, insight and um uh, We'll get into a couple other ventures that we've kind of taken on together uh, a little bit later in this. Um, but uh, as we're kind of talking about history of us, uh, we are on fatbike.com. Uh, your history with fat bikes, general. How many fat bikes? Where'd you? What was your first? Uh, are you still on your first? We don't have to get too worried about components that have been replaced and this and that we'll talk more about bike setup and stuff when we get into the main event of this conversation but you know what where'd you start who got you into it those kind of things it's a story i love to tell because i don't know how long ago it was probably eight years ago somewhere in there but i was one of those guys i was riding gravel all the time i'd been bit by that bug and i'd see these fat bikes around and i was one of those guys that were like those things are dumb those things are stupid like they'll never last they're a fad you know i was all high on my gravel horse and you know that's the that's the wave that's what every all the cool kids are doing and so i just poo-pooed the things like crazy and i can remember uh, there was a thanksgiving however many years ago it was maybe eight years or so ago and uh, the guys that we'd just gotten a fresh snow, maybe three, four inches, not a lot. And one of the guys at Rassie's, I was in there, Rasmussen Bike Shop in Des Moines. And he said, 
take this uh take this muckluck out for a spin and i was oh, like gotcha gotcha i was like all right <laughs> i got nothing better to do there's too much snow on the ground to really ride my gravel bike i'll you know i'll get this guy off my back i'll go ride the stupid thing yep and i headed down the coming trail and uh for the sake of brevity uh by the time I got back, I, I had my checkbook ready to go. You know, it was first tracks on the trail. Nobody was out there because why would you be? What bike's going to let you go out in the snow and do all of those kind of things? Everybody's kind of hunkered down. And so for too many reasons, but all the reasons why I've continued uh, to ride to where a fat bike's all I have, uh, adventure, to be alone, to be able to go anywhere, to be able to ride over basically anything. It just became this incredible Swiss army knife way to adventure. And so uh, I had the mucklock, uh, big old tank. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, aluminum steel for, I don't know what they were, but aluminum. it was the, it was the, yeah. So it was the entry level one. I think I probably paid like 600 bucks for it or something like that. And, uh, and then, you know, as I'm, for whatever reason, uh, kind of drawn to, I, I immediately went online, and that was November, and through the vouching of Joe Stiller that I wouldn't die, uh, within a week, I had got the green light from the guys at Tuscobia, and they let me into the 160, so I went from thinking the bikes were stupid to entering, Full on. entering one of the longest winter races that is offered other than JP's 200 and going to Alaska for the 350, the Tuscobio. And now it's the 160 because they changed the route a little bit. But, um, and then, you know, then that was it, man. The gear, just everything about it. I, I mean, we'll get into it, but I'm freaking full gas all the way. All in. And that, and that, you know, and, and for the, you'd asked about, you know, how many or whatever the case may be. So the, the muckluck took me for, uh, two or three years, and then uh, since then it's been Black Betty, my specialized carbon uh, fat, fat bike, bar. and and uh, um, I mean, I know I know it might sound weird to people, but I've had dogs and you know other things that I love, and uh, there's uh, I'm as close to that bike as I could be. The things we've shared, the conversations, the trouble she's gotten me out of, and trouble I've gotten her into. I, I just I love her to the moon. Yeah, man. Um, right. If it's serving you, where's the catalyst to get away from it? If it's always there for you, I'm just going to stick with you. You know, let's see it to the end kind of thing with the bike relationship. And, you know, people that aren't in deep and and we'll kind of probably we're going to touch on uh, or really elaborate on uh, experiences that you've had that I'm sure have really solidified that. I'm going to call it a relationship. Oh, it's a relationship. With your bike, yeah. you know. As uh, much as anybody could have with a horse or anything else right. that's their their weapon, if you will, to adventure. Right. Absolutely, it's a relationship. Most definitely what it offers you. It's a it's a totally, total relationship. It's been my ticket. Yeah, so you kind of, uh, you kind of touched on troubles that you've gotten into on it, troubles that it's gotten you out of. Um Let's uh, let's dig into the real deal here, the meat and potatoes, so to speak. Uh, not so much meat for you right now, but uh, you completed the 1,000-mile trek all through Alaska 
what the Iditarod 1000. You are the first Iowan to complete that event. You are how many total people have actually completed that event? Guesstimate? Um, I'll get within one or two. The event started in 2003, and looking at the results last year, 44 individuals in the 16 years had made it to Nome. Now, some of them have done it numerous Multiple times. Multiple times, yes. Not many, but some. Uh, so, and as fat bikes and adventure and all of that, you're seeing more participants now, but there were many years nobody made it. Uh, and after last year, I believe nine of us made it, and I was the last fat bike, I think, to cross the line. So I think I'm 54. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, and I would assume that uh, just general progression in technologies that we're seeing in both camp you know, pseudo camping, bike packing, and fat bike is uh, is not necessarily making that more achievable because, in my view, and you'll be able to speak on it personally, there's too many other variables you can't control in something like a thousand miles to know. Like, you just can't control weather and bears and, you know, trail conditions and stuff like that. So, like, technology, yeah, maybe makes it more achievable. Um, but the newest technology is not a definitive advantage necessarily, in my opinion, over a, a certain platform, a certain level, you know. There's no there's no technology for a ground blizzard in the middle right. of Alaska. What do you do about that? I don't care how light your carbon wheels are. <laughs> you probably wish they weighed five pounds more so your bike didn't blow away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When It's the beauty of that event. It's the beauty of Alaska is that it puts you in your place. Not in a negative way, but it really shows you your insignificance. Sure. Also, also really defines what's a real problem. You know, when a ground blizzard has got it to where a guy like you and me right now this far away, we can't hear each other and we're screaming at the top of our lungs. You realize the fact that your mail showed up a day late or your garbage guy didn't show up today on time, it's not a freaking problem. Right. Right? So I really, I really like that, what it what it teaches you and the lessons that are available to be learned out there. But you're right. There's kind of this uh, technology, not technology. So on the plus side of technology, you look back in 2003 and who knows how long it went, but you see pictures. It's two mountain bike tires that somebody has spliced together to get the first fat tire right. bike. And, you know, even up at Ken Krieger's Arrowhead 135, he still has sitting right there every year when you go to uh, register this, like, 1980s-looking huffy mountain bike with a freaking kickstand that he did his first Arrowhead 135 on. He's like, I probably pushed that damn thing 65 of the 135. So, yes, technology has some help, but at the end, when you talk to a guy like Ken and a lot of these veterans – that have done, you know, incredible things. Jay Petterberry, Bayot on his feet. Some of these guys, um, you know, it's about what's between the ears, what's what's in your soul, you know, when do you ring the bell, when do you not ring the bell, all of that. And, and also, there's a lot to be learned from the native people. You know, I was a pogies guy forever. I went to Alaska, my pogies are gone. I used um, beaver mittens that are handmade by... Uh, by folks there in Alaska that are old school technology, man. But 
the things I can accomplish with those mitts on my hands, the freedoms of not having them locked into the pogies and the movement I can have. And, you know, it rained last year and those things got wet. And, uh, I mean, Mother Nature's undefeated. So there is, there is this really cool blend of technology can serve, but there's also a lot to be learned from the old school. Most definitely, because, you know, when you consider the native people and their influence in your gear, this stuff is tried and true. It has worked when there was far less accommodations, heaters to go in the house and warm up, you know, even for an exa- like an extreme example. But like this works. It's reliable. It's not the maybe the prettiest or the lightest or the this or that, but it is functional and it is reliable. And I would think the precedent in something like a thousand miles snow is not on bling. It's on reliability and functionality. Right. No doubt. And being able to use it. Right. Yeah. Utilization of, of all your resources, uh, imperative, probably. No doubt. Yep. No doubt. And it's, you know, that trail is, I mean, it's usage, you know, goes back a hundred years. Right. You know, it used to be the mail trail. And so there's, there's historical things on that trail. And so when you have beaver mitts or you have a Wolverine trapper's hat that's been made, I like sort of that ode and that respect that you're giving to the people that have come before you. Right. And it's because like an acknowledgement. It is an acknowledgement because, uh, and it's also, it's also if you're, if you're cognizant and if you're present, when things start to suck, man, uh, and you're like, man, this, you know, this is tough. This is the shit. I don't like this, whatever. Maybe I, if you have a little perspective, you can be like, you know what? A hundred years ago, they didn't have puffy coats. They didn't have puffy parkas, you know? It was and fifty or sixty. It was fifty or sixty below, not twenty or thirty below, you know. And and they got through. So there's also something that you can rely on there, where you can get your own mind out of your way, where you're like, yeah, my mind tells me I should quit, but if I look at the facts of the situation, people have come before me. Right. In it these can very be done. St- it can be done. Right. If right? there is a will, there there is definitively a way. It, there's a precedence with there. less gear, with less. Right. With more weight, all of these kind of things, they found a way to get through. So right. my mind may say no, but the facts of the matter are yes. And there's something there's something powerful in that. Too. Right. A testament to human resiliency and yeah. uh, determination and things like that, you yeah. know, overcoming of obstacles and it against all odds. Yeah. Still finding a way to get the task at hand. done. Yeah. yeah. And looking right. back and going, you know what? There's guys that did this 60, 70 years ago. If they'd had the gear I have now, they'd be, crushing. They'd be, like, they'd be like, this is a freaking picnic, sissy boy. Yep. Like, hike up your pants and get to work. Right. Let's get going. Yeah. No time. Time's not for yeah. wasting. Enough Let's of the pity party. Yeah. You got it pretty good. Most definitely. Um, so, you know, obviously, uh, I did rod supports on foot, on dog sled, and on bike. Correct? Just those three disciplines? You can ski it. I you can know. all. Ooh, I don't wow. know if Woof. anybody has done done it though Yikes. i don't know i historically i really should know that but i don't know that so okay. um, but they're different organizations the dog organization you're probably getting to that um is they're different races but you do get to share the the trail with the dogs right utilization of the trail but totally separate events so Correct. to speak yeah. yeah um can can you kind of elaborate um so big undertaking right like to me the way I am, if I was going to take on something like that, it would absolutely consume me. I just don't think I could get out of 
that mindset once I was in. Uh, how do you prepare? How long does it take to prepare for something like that? I know you had a pretty specific way that you address certain environmental variables and accommodations. Uh, obviously, you talked about gear being reflected to the native people and, and kind of uh, some intel from in Alaska versus, you know, somebody over to the Internet or over the phone, which has value. But, you know, when you're in it, you're, you're in it. You'll know, like, whether this is going to work or not. So how do you prep how long does it take you to prep? How do you prep for this? Like, you're not going to go ride a thousand miles in snow in, you know, like just on a casual month. Yeah. Yeah. You use the right word <clears throat> when you say, <clears throat> excuse me, when you say consume. So when I first, I mean, we go back to the story about getting into Tuscobia. Yep. So there's no... I'd only ridden in the snow that on that silly trail to coming before I show up at Tuscobia to try and go 160 miles on the muckluck. Now, I'd had some mentors along the way, Joe Stiller, Jay Petterberry, who had given me advice and helped me on the fast track with clothing and gear and those kind of things. But I can remember showing up for the pre-ride the day before, and you know I get on the trail, and I go, I don't know, eight feet, and I fall over. And I'm like, wow, oh, okay. So I get back, I get back, I get back up, and I go like 14 feet, and I fall over. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm starting to do the math in my head, and I'm thinking 160 miles, 14 feet at a time, fall down, get back up. It's going to be a long day. And fortunately, Joe Stiller comes up, and he's like, let out some air. And he's like, if you fall down again, let out some more air. Sage words. When you stop, and to this day, that's. That's the pump that I use, and I've done it enough now that I kind of, you know, I can get pretty close to where I'm just like, man, that feels like I'm about 16 seconds light, you know, and get, and and so, uh, you know, you realize really quickly that, uh, but at that time, I had no, I had no aspirations of going to Nome. I really didn't even know it existed. I just, um, but you start to hear. Yeah, sure, trickles. Right? Like somebody's like, yeah. I'm doing this to qualify for Order of the Rhymethers, which is doing all three of the winter races in five weeks' time. And you're like, what's that? And, you know, that guy went to, you know, you go to the Triple D. And uh, what's the guy's name that puts on the Triple D at this stage? It used to be Lance right Andre. Yeah, Lance it's, Andre. It's switched and hands Lance, a little bit, but he had dabbled yeah. in stuff, you Yeah, know? so I think Lance went to uh, McGrath, the 350. So you'd show up at the Triple D and somebody would be like, that guy went to McGrath. I'm like... McGrath, uh, Wisconsin, <laughs> you know, McGrath, like what, yeah, where, and so you start to hear these things. And so eventually uh, a guy named Todd McFadden, we were up doing the fat bike race in, uh, in Canada. Um, and I just happened to get stuck by him, uh, as luck would have it on the, they drive us out 40 miles and that's where it starts and blah, blah, blah. It's a hundred mile race. And he's talking about someday wanting to go there and he's talking about the stories that he's from some of the old timers and he's talking about rainy pass and the Delzell gorge and yetna station and all of these kind of things and i'm like you know i got like saucer eyes i'm like at, so i'm like at my grandfather's foot you know my and he's telling the stories and i'm like holy moly you know and then i asked the question which i think is the, one of the greatest questions we can ever ask which is you know could i do that 
Am I capable of that? And that starts to engage all sorts of things, oh, you yeah. know, the wondering and the mind. So again, you use the right word, which is consume. So that became a goal was to go to qualify to where I could go to McGrath. Forget Nome. Right. I mean, that, was, that was freaking Mars, man. Right. And, and for me, it was blasphemous to even say, I'm thinking about going to Nome someday when you haven't even been to McGrath. Right. Like that's, you know, walk before you can run. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's, and, and to even talk about that when you haven't done it, I think doesn't pay the proper respect to the people that have gone to McGrath and are going to go there. Like, I don't have any idea. Alaska's a whole different right. planet. Right. It's exclusive, right? I mean, not like in its uh, welcoming or something, but it is its own set of things to consider. Yeah, Minnesota I mean, is all good. Wisconsin is all good. <clears throat> Canada's all good. Uh, Idaho is all good. Alaska's Alaska. And to me, there's a distinctive, not just geographic separation, but overall mentality and all kinds of things are different. It's a whole nother world, man. Yeah, I, I got mean, to spend a couple of weeks just in Anchorage, which is like yeah. not the... It's not the interior. Yeah, right. You know, it's like it's modern amazing. and it's a great place. It's amazing. Um, but even there, you could feel this aura of For like... For sure. You get five whoa. minutes outside of town yeah, and, and you're, you're in nothing like, land. Oh, wow. Yeah, woods and bears. I'm, I'm nowhere. Yep. You know, and, the, and you bring up a great point. Me, you, Gomez, anyone, if we decided we wanted to go to Everest next year, if we got the pocketbook, we don't have to, we don't have, to have any credentials. Right. Zero. Right. They'll just say, show up with this gear, show up with that gear, show up with that gear. Now, I'm sure any, all the guides will tell you we need you trained for this and trained. But the point is, if you got the time and you got the money, you can go to the top you of can, Everest, right. or you can at least take a swing at it. You can line up. No no such thing on the Iditarod Trail Invitational. You have to qualify. There is no amount of money that they're going to be like, yeah, great. You got a fat bike. You got a few thousand bucks. We'll take your money. None of that. And so uh, I was, even for McGrath, I said, you know, this place gets all my respect and all my fear. So when you talk about being consumed, it, it became consuming for me. I, I left, um, a few years ago, uh, would have been right now, basically two years ago to, uh, to move there. I moved to Fairbanks because that's where, you know, it was supposedly the coldest and, uh, you know, the most, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere kind of thing. And so found, uh, through the help of Kevin Breitenbach and, uh, a guy up there, a great fat bike rider, uh, helped find me a dry cabin out in the Goldstream Valley. And so I completely immersed in it. I, I rode every day. I looked at what this guy was wearing and that guy was wearing. And, you know, it's an incredibly cycling as a whole, but there's something about the fat bike community. It's incredibly welcoming and it's incredibly willing to share because there is more involved in the in the winter riding scene because it's not just getting on a bike. You have to, you have to maybe get a certain pair of shoes or you have to have some considerations for your feet and your hands and those kind of things. And none of us start out knowing that. So whether it's me or Gomez or whoever, somebody probably shared something with us early on that helped us, you know, not freeze our feet off, not be miserable because people just assume I like being cold. Nobody freaking likes being cold. Nobody. It makes cowards of us all. What you want to do is be able to have fun in the cold. And so that's what 
that's what my whole learning process was. And so I left everything behind, man. I moved there, cabin with no running water. I, you know, I, I'd go out for five, six hour rides, come back completely knackered. And I'd be like, okay, now I'm going to go on my porch and I'm going to set up my bivy and it's 30 below and I'm going to get in it and I'm going to figure out the right, whoa, I missed a step. I'm freaking cold. I'm going inside. I'm going to get by the fire. I'm going to think this back through. And that was my process to learn you know, to learn the systems because eventually you figure out certainly there has to be a level of fitness, but a, a buddy um, that I'd met the first time I was going to go over rainy pass and there was this gnarly ass storm. And I turned around because some of the old school guys had said, do not go over rainy pass in the dark, in a storm as a rookie, just don't do it. You know, yeah. it's one of those things don't do, but I can remember Bob Hinch and I was coming back and he was, no, not Bob, last name. I got the last name wrong. Um, but Bob was going the other way, and he was just wide-eyed. Like, he he couldn't wait to get to the party. Right. You know? That was the jam. And he's like, I know what I'm doing. Yep. So these kind of storms don't come along very often. I'm headed right into the teeth of it. And we talked a little bit after the race, and he's had something I always remember. He said, the Iditarod is not so much a bike ride as it is horizontal mountaineering. Sure. I could understand that and a little I bit. I love that. It's about the systems. And you know what? You had mentioned it a little bit earlier about, you know, Wisconsin, Minnesota, those kind of things. <clears throat> it's not that you can't learn your systems and do these things in the lower 48, but to do them in Alaska, in the environment that you're going to be in, um, we're kind of jumping ahead here, but last year, 70 some people started between the 150, the 350 and the thousand mile race. The first night, it's a long ride to Yentna. The snow's not great in different places, that sort of thing. And the temperature dropped to like 30 below and almost a dozen of the 72 competitors DNF'd their race, not 24 hours into it because the conditions freaked them out and they weren't really familiar with their gear or being in a place where you like that's big country it's one thing to be here it's one thing to be in minnesota whatever but you go out in the middle of alaska or 10 minutes outside of anchorage put your foot down and look around and you're like whoa man this is a big place and you start to like you can you can freak a little bit oh yeah so it consume is the exact word and so i've i've lived there um I've lived there the last two winters, and last year I was there for five months, including my time on the trail. So, yeah, man, uh, I, I think we have to establish the point. Steve does not like cold. No. Definitively, if we're at the same gravel event, you are more dr- overdressed than most people, most in my people. opinion. I'm a way more overdressed than I am. I'm a complete sissy, dude. Does not I'm like a it. Complete Comes sissy. out of the bus nothing. or whatever and beaver mittens, Wolverine hat. I was sitting gravel. It was like 40, 35 <laughs> degrees at the front. Down <laughs> booties. You know, this guy, this is not your jam. I don't, right? I don't like being You're cold. exposing yourself to something that is not comfortable. You don't have this like mutant ability to adapt to cold that makes this easier or something in fact it's like totally contrary to what you want to experience yeah i want to i my goal is to my goal is to be comfortable in the most uncomfortable of situations and that takes some freaking practice right and i think that's exactly probably the mentality of bob who's heading it you know if you can experience the worst 
and endure through the worst, boy, that's a lot of confidence in the almost worst, and which is more prevalent than the very worst. And there's really, at least in my world, there's really nothing more exciting than to be in the eye of the storm, to have all hell breaking loose around you and be like, oh, hell yeah, I got this. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a level of confidence and freedom that I think why, and it was the thing that I was so enamored with the fat bike right off the bat, because just on that little ride down to coming Iowa, I could see this is my ticket. Awesome. Yeah. Opening doors, right? This is like a whole new accessibility to adventure into pushing my personal limitations. Yeah. You know, I remember that being uh, actually my first triple D uh, that I did, which was, man, I can't recall, maybe 2008 or nine. I think it's been around about 10 years, I've done yeah. maybe seven of them. Uh, but that first one was real cold with awful snow. I mean, like four inches of snow, a sheet of ice, four inches of snow. You pretty much post hold your way down the trail. And we endured that for quite a while. And you know, kind of similar to your Tuscobia thoughts, uh, we did a little of the math, and at the pace we were going, we were going to finish the next day about three in the afternoon. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so ultimately, we decided for self-sustainability and uh, recognizing lack of preparedness, really, or, mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. we bailed and, and got out of there. Yeah. Um, but it triggered something. Yeah. You know, that's like, all right, yeah. this is this is good. You know, like it's good to be challenged, right? Yeah. And it's that's good to a... feel fear. It's good to fail in preparation if you're learning. Yeah, yeah. So that's exactly it. Like, that's not a that's not a fail because you gained. of the of the things right. that you, you of the things that you it. gained. And that's the triple D is a fantastic race because it allows us to get a taste. And and do it with a big safety net. Right, yeah. Good places to get away. You know, you're never in really too deep that you that you can't get out. Maybe temporarily you're, you're doing some suffering, you know. Yeah. But uh, generally a safer environment uh, than the wilderness of even like an Arrowhead 135. That's and, right. And Triple D, you know, overall maybe a 70-mile race, 65 to 70 miles. Little more accommodating. You're not getting real crazy elevation and stuff. You're, you know, it's a, it's a good... Uh, intro into like can you endure everywhere from four hours to 10 hours on the bike and if you can now what can you do you know is 100 feasible is 135 feasible is 160 feasible is 200 feasible is 350 feasible yeah then you're starting to get a little crazy from there you know as far as what you need and stuff in my opinion like i respect and stuff but i think that goes out of the i think all those previous ones with proper training and and knowledge and experience are achievable for the majority of people. I think once you crest the 350 to McGrath, I think there's specific intent there. You know, your casual fat bike rider really is probably going to have to dedicate to to get much further than that, I think. The thousands a whole different beast. Yeah, right. The and, thousands of vision quest, man. Yeah, right. Like, not not even in the realm. I mean, I've seen, and we'll touch on the film and, and stuff like that uh, pretty soon, but, you know, in that... Uh, it, they acknowledge multiple times that pretty much the race starts 
at McGrath, right? And that kind of the, you know, uh, it, there's like uh, amenities and things like that. You get to a McGrath and then from McGrath on, oh boy, trouble, Troubleville. Tell us about the journey, month long, roughly. How does this go? You're there, you're dialed. Preparations set. As prepared as you can possibly be knowing what you know and having access to what you have access to. Day one, line up, what happens? Man. It brings so many thoughts and emotions because you're there, first of all. And so there's the recognition of being there. For me, I spent a fair amount of time, maybe the last five minutes or so, before we had to line up to just recognize the victory that had already been achieved to be there. Toeing the line, right? To be there. Give it what you got. This was four years of single-minded purpose to be at this spot. So I wanted to certainly be aware and grateful for where I was. So there's that before I even turn the pedals to be like, dude, to line up for the 1,000 is a victory in itself. Because you can't line up to do that unless you have fought through, made a lot of sacrifices, had a lot of great times as well. But there's just, so there was, there was that. And also just a mutual respect to look all around you and even the people there to do the 150. You know, you're in a group of kindred spirits. And so... There was a lot going on just at the start line to just be one of the many and to be so honored to be in their presence because, you know, for me, it was kind of like the Highlander. If anybody has, knows that old movie, you know, it was, there can be only one. It was the gathering. I am forever. You know, this was, this, this is all of the, you know, this is all of the fat bike adventure, men, women, like just to look around and be like. I, I can just point at any one of you and be like, you're a badass. I admire you. You're amazing. I don't have to know your story. You're here. That's all I need right. to know. Validated. So, yeah. So there was, there was that real thankfulness. And then it becomes, you know, then it becomes um, get into the moment. Because the, for me, being in the first time, the thousand and only the second time I've been on the trail, right? A lot of the old time guys would be like, man, you need to go to McGrath probably three or four times before you even think about going to Nome. Well, I had shortened that curve down because for most of you know, when they're saying that most of those people that are showing up, they're not living in Alaska. Right. Right. So I've got, by the time last year start, I've got seven months riding in Alaska over two winters. So have I been to McGrath more than once? No, but I've taken numerous overnight trips by myself in the White Mountains, you know, 
just all over the place. And so, but still, you know, if you stand at that finish line, at least for me, and think and, and spend any time at all thinking about the fact that you're about to try and go a thousand miles, it would eat me up. So I, I had created this thing called the 26 Steves. That's what it eventually became, which was, I, I told myself, and this had been something kind of in development without even really acknowledging it, um, from running across Iowa or running around Lake Michigan or even the 350, which was to say today here at the start line, I'm the perfect Steve for the job for today. And I don't, I only exist for today. This Steve to Yentna station, whatever comes at him, this is his day and he's perfect in it. And when this day is over, I bury him. He doesn't exist. That was my way to stay in the moment because to think about day two or day seven or what would eventually be day 21 or 24, you know, what if day one sucks? For a lot of those people that DNF'd, I would say that's probably what happened to them is that they had decided in their mind because this had happened on day one, it was probably going to be like this for every single day. You know, if you give the mind any sort of opening in these kind of events, it will get in there and it will start to just work its way to where then you're just like, like we talked before, when you're comparing, you know, oh, I got it so tough. And then you somebody shows you a picture of some guy that was doing it in gear that's nowhere near like this and you have perspective. So that was the way that I was able to focus at the start and say, you know what? I only exist for one day. That's it. And that eliminated any of that bullshit about thinking about what's coming down the road. If it started to enter my mind, I could immediately turn it off because I would be like, that's day 14, Steve. He's out there waiting, and he's the perfect freaking weapon for day 14, so I don't have to worry about that. I only have to worry about day one, Steve, and I'm going to be the best there, and I'm carrying the baton, and I know day two, two, Steve, is waiting for me, cheering me on, right, because he's waiting for that baton, and when things got tough, I think about all the Steves and all of the days before that, and I thought, all right, if you want to quit, that's fine, but you tell every one of those Steves that's lived in that freaking cabin in the middle of nowhere away from his friends and family that the shit's too tough and you're going to pack it in. And that was a call I just wasn't ever willing to make. Right, like an accountability. But also a focus at task at hand, right? Task at hand. Breadth of awareness, all good. Probably a necessity. But I'm assuming, never done it, easy to get overwhelmed, right? Easy to get, like you said, it, it's in the head, and it festers, this overarching, so impossible. And if you partition that somewhat into, for you as day-to-day, but if you can kind of compartmentalize the necessity of your internal talents or experiences or whatever, and have reliability that they are there to get me to success. I've done what I need and what I can do to put me in this position. Now I need as you, you know, to kind of interpret, I need the best version of me to accommodate these particular variables right now and for this duration. And then I will acknowledge it, but I don't need that anymore. I got to move on. I'm constantly progressing. I'm constantly moving forward and I'm constantly having to adapt to new circumstances, new terrains. Uh, I would assume things like bike mechanicals and, and we'll talk about some of the hurdles and stuff too, that you had to get over uh, your guts. Uh, for one thing, you know, like these kind of things. If you're if you're trying to look at the big picture, 
my question is how how efficient are you at dealing with what you need to deal with when you need to deal with it? That's because it. that's distractions, right? These are not important right now. They're important to acknowledge, but I can't do anything about day three when I'm on day one. They're only important to the mind. Right. And the mind's a freaking coward. Weak. I mean, even the strongest minds will will crack, right, eventually? It's unless here. you formulate this plan. In a very basic sense, the mind's here to keep us safe. Right. So it's you're you're in a constant battle against the natural state of mind, which is to say, this is dangerous. You're not supposed to put your hand on the hot oven. You'll get burnt. So if you don't come up with a way to shut that off, to head that off at the pass, then you're you're done. Right. You're absolutely done. So you hit the nail on the head. But And the thing I like is, you know, the Iditarod, the 350, the 1000 especially, the lessons learned to do that are lessons that will apply to any Iditarod you want to take on in your life, which is what I freaking love. You you find what's your Iditarod. You acknowledge that goal, the breadth of it. If it's worthy, it does scare the shit out of you. And then you come back from the macro to the micro. All right, what do I have to do now? How do we get this done? Right? Step 14, I'm not even on step six, but that's where the mind wants to go. Yep. Going around Lake Michigan, day 37 wanted to get in my head when I'm on day two. Come on. Right. I got 30 other days I got to freaking get through before I deal with day 37. So all of those things that helped to create this thing, and then even looking forward to the future, when things got really tough, I would think, you know what? Gnome Steve, finish line Steve, he's there. And right. if I quit, I kill him. Yeah, He never gets to exist. Right. He never gets to have that ride around Cape Nome and come down that finish line. So am I willing to make that call? Am I willing to call Gnome Steve and say, stand down? It's just not going to happen, bro. It's just too tough. Yeah. And, and so that was the compartmentalization. And I think as human beings, we're always more apt to do something for others, right, versus ourselves. There's that, there's that innate thing in us as humans, right? We might not, not want to pick ourselves up off the ground, but if we go over here and somebody's struggling, we'll pick them off the ground. So I was, I was creating that in a sense as well, that there were these other versions of me out there. And if I could get through today, then tomorrow that Steve could exist. And so there were these kind of things, but definitely staying in the moment if there was one thing. Tim Hewitt says it in the movie, which I loved. I wrote it on my handlebars. Uh, Dave had asked him, for somebody that's taking this on, what would you say is the one word? And I can remember it. Again, it's on my handlebars. He said measured. Mm. Interesting. And I was like, that's it. Not too high, not too low. Right. Measured. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's Duration, great, right? Great, great, great word for that's life a, as well. Oh, yeah. That's you know, a great one. Not coincidentally, he's gone to know him 10 times on his feet. Yeah. Pretty, pretty badass dude, right? Let that sink in. Yes. Yeah, sit in for a second. Let's let that sink in. I know we kind of started talking the race. Let's uh, take a break for a second. Come back. Dig into the actual event, uh, a couple things that you went through uh, during the event, and then we'll touch on a few things that are outside of uh, fat biking, kind of life stuff and how we continue our relationship, things like that. So take a break for a second. Uh, We'll be right back.
Today's program is brought to you by BikeJacket.net. Have you ever gotten to that weekend ride that you've been daydreaming about all week and discovered that snow and road spray froze your derailleur or encased your brakes in ice? BikeJacket.net has the perfect solution. BikeJacket makes easy-to-install covers that protect your bike from the nastiest winter weather. Winter travel exposes your bike to salt spray, and rust never sleeps, amigos. So before you leave for your next bike date, put your bike on the rack and put a jacket on your bike. Bike jacket covers work with all hitch and roof racks, and they're running a special holiday offer until New Year's Day 2020. Visit bikejacket.net or click on the banner in the show notes for the best bike covers in the business. All right, we are back with Steve Cannon, first Iowan to complete the 1,000-mile journey to Nome, uh, Iditarod Trail Invitational. Uh, kind of getting back to where we were, we are at Kinnick Lake in Alaska at the start line preparing for a 1,000-mile journey to Nome. From there, let's, let's, let's hear it, well, you know. We don't have to get into the nitty-gritty of all things. I think everyone would assume there are trials and tribulations, right? There are things that go well, and there are things that don't go as well. Let's hit on some things, real, like, daunting prospects. I'm a little more uh, interested in overcoming some of these hurdles than, like, well, the snow was really good, and it was not, like, totally freezing, and and it was a good day. Like, all right, sweet, but, uh, you know, I kind of want to hear about the the bullshit stuff, you know, the, the rough stuff. How do we get over that? We've talked a lot about frame of mind and preparation and all these things that are integral in being able to get over these hurdles. So what are some of these tangible hurdles, weather, terrain? Uh, I definitively want you to talk on a close enough, in my book, a counter with a grizzly bear. Uh, those kind of things. And, and what happened in this, let's just stick on 30-day, month-long journey to Nome. Well, it's it's interesting because right at the start, I'm talking, you know, go to your front door right now and look 200 yards out. Consider that the starting line at Kinnick Lake. There were people falling off their bikes. Yikes. And so... You've got that challenge right off the bat, which is the snow in the first five miles is not fantastic. You know, it's multi-use stuff. Some of it's packed really well. Some of it is mashed potatoes. So even at the very start, you'd see somebody, much like I did at Tiscobia when we talked about that earlier, go 20 feet. They fall off their bike. And they get back on it, and they go 20 feet, and they fall off their bike. And you're looking at this, and you're like, dude, you better let some air out of those tires, you know? And and so there's a test right off the bat, which if you're just a casual observer, you're thinking, oh, big deal, right? But it's a, it's a poignant test because... In Alaska, on that trail, more than any place else I've ever been, small problems become big problems. And it's a lesson that carries through in life as well. But it's really easy to just keep fighting the bike. Right. 
And, and so you have to be good and on it right off the bat. But even that is a great study in the mind, right? Even if you're in the 150-mile race, that your mind can take control and convince you that it doesn't have time to stop and let air out of your tires so that the next however long can be comfortable. Right. Right. We've all done that. If we're talking about biking, yeah. we can all relate to being somewhere really cool, biking around the corner and going, oh, that's beautiful. I should take a picture. I don't have freaking time. Right. I'm rolling. You couldn't have more time. Yeah. Right. And I've, I've had to fight that like crazy. And eventually I have to be like two separate people. And I'm like, okay, you know what? We're just going to test that theory. Yeah. So right. I'm going to put my foot down. I'm going to take my phone out and I'm going to count. And inevitably, I take the picture, I put my phone back away, and I'm at like 43. Yeah, right. Now, Pretty insignificant. Right? We're in the middle of Colorado on a bikepacking trip. We really have nowhere to go to, no one to answer to, but our mind still tells us like, now nah, let's just keep pedaling, you know? And inevitably, you get to the end of the day and you're talking about this sunset and you're like, or whatever it was you saw at that particular time, you're like, why didn't I take the freaking picture? Yeah. You know? So you have this mental challenge right off the bat which is just would seem insignificant but it's not because if you flunk that test that's just that's just something that's going to compound so you, for the next 7 miles you're going to fall or have to put your foot down probably 47 times right so in wasted energy mental energy physical energy all of those kind of things you only have so many matchsticks and once they're all burnt you go home right and so you nothing is insignificant on that trail and then, uh, then, but the first real challenge, the trail is not ideal to Yentna Station. It's not terrible. You get on a highway for a little while, but eventually you get to Flathorn Lake, which is, I don't know, a few hours into the ride. And Flathorn Lake is notoriously shitty snow. Mm-hmm. It's just soft and all of that kind of thing. And you see it play out again, you know there's times, well, I've only done it twice, so I don't mean to try to come off like a veteran, but there's times where, you know, I mean, the first year on Flathorn Lake, I got down to where I was just as low a tire pressure as I could go. Right. And, and I'm going like two and a half miles an hour, but Flathorn Lake is, you know, it's 10, 15, 20 miles. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's, it's big enough. And so if I'm going two and a half, but I'm riding and you're going one and a half, and you're pushing, I'm 10 miles down the trail on the other side of Flathorn Lake while you're still cussing because Suffering. because you decided, you know, you didn't want to take the time to let the air out of your tires. So there's these, there's these places where it could have been a challenge there, and maybe it wasn't. You'll hear people that DNF'd on the way to Yentna Station that will have all of these different horror stories, and then you'll have others that were on the exact same trail that didn't have those problems. Right. And so why? But then you come off of Flathorn Lake, you're on the trail, and you drop onto the Yentna River. And in Alaska, dropping onto a river, it may only be 10 feet from the riverbank down to the floor of that river where you're riding. But that can be 10 degrees. Sure just in that 10 foot drop. So it was only supposed to get to 
10 below by the forecast. Um, and it probably didn't get a whole lot less than that. It might have got to maybe 15, 16, 17 below. But if you haven't done any riding in Alaska, you don't know that hopping onto that river, now it's 27 below. Right. And the snow on the river was decent. Uh but it's, you know, it's 60 miles to get in a station, and that can be 15, 16 hours. Right. And so there was, there was, there was some early challenges. Now, after that, uh, it stayed cold, which that's really what you're looking for. Sure. If it stays cold, the trail stays reliable, and it stays fast, and you can make time. Now, granted, fast in... Alaska terms on the fat bike, you know, on the Iditarod Trail means you might be going eight. Yeah, right. Frame of framing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But it was, it was like a guided fat bike trip for the most part to McGrath. The weather stayed between zero and 10 or 15 below. The sun was out. You know, by that time of year, the days are longer they're up to nine, ten hours. Bluebird sky. The year before, it was not that. The weather was much less reliable. A couple ground blizzards, a couple storms, gnarly stuff. But for the most part, getting to McGrath. Now, there's a couple places, good weather, bad weather, it doesn't matter. There's a place called the Happy Steps. Happy Steps. Which, seen is, it. which is just a wall. I mean, it's straight up. And you have to get off the river to get started up to Happy Steps. And I'm me as well as everybody else, whether you're pulling your sled behind you and you're on foot or you're on a bike, if you got there by yourself, which I did, I wasn't around anybody at that time, it was only 10 feet to get off the riverbank, but I couldn't get it. I couldn't get my bike up. I, I pushed it two or three steps and it was just too steep and I'd lose my footing and I'd slide back down. And I did that a couple of times. And I'm looking around and I don't know if there's anybody within a hour of me or five hours of me. So I got to figure it out. So you know, it. you do what you got to do. So off come the bungee cords, and I throw my sleeping bag 10 feet up off the bank, but it only makes it 8 feet, and it slides back down. And I throw it again, and it rolls back down. And, you know, you're sitting there in the middle of Alaska, and I'm having a freaking fit. You know, I don't know who else can listen to this, so I won't say what I was saying at that time, but it was, you know, it, it was snapping me. Yeah. And uh, But eventually you get it up there over the bank, and then you have to, you know – dial everything and again it's kind of what we talked about with the take the 10 seconds to take the picture you calm down you look at the situation how long does this really going to take right. you know is this a real problem or is it just a problem up here you know and so all told it probably took me 10 minutes to get out of that felt like an eternity <laughs> felt like an eternity and it's expectations you learn that on the Iditarod trail at least that's where i i would joke with my friends and be like yeah, Iditarod Trail became my Yoda, became my teacher. What am I really pissed about here? I'm pissed because I had an expectation that I'd be able to get off the river without having this hassle. That expectation was unmet. And so now, like a little kid, I'm having a freaking fit. Right. So if I can drop my expectations and just deal and accept in the moment, then I can get through these things. But the happy steps, even in perfect conditions with a friend to get up there, it's a freaking wall. There's nothing happy about them other than when you get to the top. Uh, and then... And then you've got Rainy Pass, which uh, is about 3,000 feet, and you're starting, for the most part, at sea level. And, uh, you know, 
the year before it was 20, 30 below with 50 mile an hour winds. And, uh, it was as crazy a fist fight as I've ever been in. You were, you literally had to get to the point where you were taking one step at a time and just, at least for me, I, it, it just became as raw a place as it could be. And I cussed mother nature and I just told her, you know, you bring whatever you want. I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I won't stop. You can't stop me. I want you. I was Lieutenant Dan on Forrest Gump on the top of that ship. I was saying, is that all you got? Bring more to the party. You can't stop me. I'm, and, uh, but it was, you know, it was, it was one of those places and one of those times you'd take, you know, the goal was 10 steps. And, and at the end of the 10 steps, I'd have to, because it was so cold, there was nothing that could be exposed, nothing. And so I've got my balaclava on, I've got my face covered and it's freezing literally to my beard. It's, uh, and, and because I can't take it down and I'm breathing through it, I'm working so hard. I'd have to stop every 10 steps and turn my back to the wind so I could pull my face mask down to take four or five deep breaths to get myself back in the game, put it back up turn back into the wind, take 10 more steps. And that's how I existed for two or three hours to get eventually into the pass itself where the wind was hidden. Um, But even getting to the top of that pass, there's pictures all the time, all over the place of people that have got there kind of like Everest or wherever. And it's a perfect, beautiful sky and you get your glory moment. But, you know, two years ago, there was none of that. You got to the top and it was very inhospitable. And there was no picture taking because you're like, this is not a place for humans to hang out. I, I got to get the hell off of this and get down the other side. This year, it was it was beautiful. It ended up being not that wind. And it was great to be able to experience both things because I probably talk more about, as we all do, the real challenging 50 you know, mile an hour winds blow you off your bike. You couldn't ride. You just had to push it. Then I do the bluebird, beautiful sky sort of thing up there. But those are the real challenges uh, on the way to McGrath. There's a long stretch going to Nikolai, which is 75 miles through a place called the Farewell Burn, which is where a, you know, giant fire has has scorched the earth there in, in years past. And the distance of that and uh, the opportunity as well, that's a heavy area for moose. And so that's another thing that can be really, really aggravating is that, uh, you know, the moose use the trail too. They're no dummies. They'd rather not post hole just like humans. And so you can be on a trail that should be great and it's just potholed to shit. Uh. And so you're going like two miles an hour and it feels like it's going to knock the fillings out of your teeth. And, you know, the year before, it's probably the lowest moment I've ever had in my life where trying to get to Nikolai and it's two in the morning and, and you've been on your bike or on your feet for 16, 17, 18 hours. And, uh, you know, you just, I mean, it's, you know, just tap yourself in the middle of the forehead for the next <laughs> eight hours. And just at some point, you know, you'll just lose it. Yeah. And, and so it was that kind of place, but those are the, those are the real issues getting to McGrath and it's not to say that there aren't incredible moments of uh, joy and elation because because there are. But again, going back to Tim Hewitt, not so much the year before, but with a year of experience and living in Alaska behind me, 
it, it really was about being measured. And even when those moments would come, I would try to, to keep things level because I was really always thinking about the matchsticks and even great elation burns matches burns matches right and so you you really you really have to stay as even keel yeah. as uh, as you can so that's mcgrath and the reason i'm not continuing on with more things from there is because they really are two different races yeah mcgrath uh 350 miles to mcgrath right yeah. and then from there wilderness increased reliability of uh accommodations decreased <laughs> you know there are things out there um not too much not too much past that well especially on the southern route right so for people that don't know the iditarod trail is is a straight line a thousand mile trail except for we'll call it 300 miles in the middle where it becomes this big square and every two years you go south and every two years you go north, and then it reunites, and you continue on for the last third, if you will. Uh, but the southern route is mostly abandoned, and because of that, there's not much village-to-village traffic, which means the trail is much less reliable. If a snow comes, there's probably not going to be a bunch of village traffic to reset the trail. Uh, so the southern route can be, and well... To put it into just very simple terms, the record crossing on a fat bike on the northern route is 10 days. The record crossing on the southern route on a fat bike is 18 days. Gotcha. gotcha. And the only difference in the two routes is that middle third. So there's that's a big damn difference. Right. Distinguishable difference. I yeah. mean, that's a, almost 100% increase in, in duration, right? Yeah. 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 And all of that basically due to the middle third when you go down through Iditarod old gold rush villages that have since been shut down. There's not, there's not, not much there. So finishing the Southern route is, um, equally wonderful and equally horrible. For sure. Uh, I can, that's, that's really interesting. I, I didn't know there was such a, uh, appreciate, uh, you know, a huge significant difference between the two routes in, in preparation and, uh, duration of time, you know, I, I would only sign up on a North route personally. <laughs> some people that are, some people that are, uh, deep in the fat bike world and pay attention to stuff, probably the greatest, certainly one of the greatest adventurers on a fat bike that there is today is a guy named Jeff Oatley. Yeah, for sure. And he's gone out there and done a couple of years ago. He did a 2000 mile solo trek on his fat bike. Um, and jokingly, not jokingly, talking to him last year in the bike shop. Uh, he said, no, I've never done the Southern route. That, that, that route's crazy. I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Not for and, him. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and it's not that he couldn't handle it because right, he's right, done, right. he's done, he's done it all. But even a guy like that, that has absolute respect and Jedi skills is like, no nah, man, screw that Southern route. <laughs> yeah. Not for me. Right. Yeah, 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 it's yeah, yeah. the challenges you choose to accept. Right. And he yeah. doesn't have to accept that. Yeah. Nor would I. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, one thing, you know, one thing that I, I got exposed to a lot of this, uh, via the movie, uh, that we're going to really dig into in a second, but, uh, a thing that sticks out to me, if we're not covering the breadth of the last, 650 miles if we're just touching on it 
I'm touching on the grizzly bear in your vicinity. Spotted. Awake. For whatever reason. I think you know it in the movie. It's probably awake because it's pretty hungry. Yeah. Maybe didn't get enough snacks before hibernation, you know? Um, <laughs> what do you do there? Like, obviously, you have to you have to keep focused again. You have to stay on track. You had a little help from a local, right? Uh, kind of when you are riding in nowhere land with no uh, apparent help in sight, and somehow the awareness that a friggin' grizzly bear who may be ill-tempered is in your vicinity. Whoa, what you know? Like that's that's. Uh, you know, that's like why people don't go to the woods. You know, like they have an irrational fear of bears. You have a real now rational fear of a grizzly bear that presumably can get to you. And, and there's consequences if a grizzly bear gets to you, right? What goes through your head? How does that situation work itself out, so to speak? You know, kind of, kind of, I think that's a fun story part of the, the uh, journey you were on. And maybe micro, but it, it stands out to me. Fun's an interesting word. To use. <laughs> it uh, there's something about Alaska. We talked about it earlier. There's something freeing in the knowledge that if it wants you, it gets you. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do about it. And. That's a, that's something you have to accept if you're going to go do this, that you're probably number four on the food chain. Yeah, that's rough. A moose, yeah. the most dangerous of all the animals in Alaska, because they're just ornery and they'll stomp you. A mother Destroy moose will. You, right. um, they won't get off the trail. There's numerous stories of racers having to back away. And they tell you before the race, like a moose isn't like an ordinary critter. If it's laying on the trail, you, you get better away. you better not approach it. Yeah, you know you can yell a little bit, see if it gets up, but you know. And uh, so you've got the moose, you've got the wolves, you've got the grizzly bear, and you've got Mother Nature. So you're four or five on the on the food chain, and there's something there's something freeing in that. Um, if you can get to that point, which I don't think I'm there. Uh, and I didn't actually ever see the grizzly bear, but I'm pretty certain the grizzly bear saw me. Yeah. We were on a stretch of the Bering Sea ice, which still, man, you know, I'm a small town kid from Iowa. You know, when you talk about the thousand miles to Nome and to, to think that I actually am able to say that I was on a section of the Bering Sea ice. It's on just, your bike. Yeah, man. It's it's why Black Betty is, there's that relationship. She, I agreed. She, she is my ticket. She's how I got there, you know? So there's, it's still an unbelievable thing to me to, to even tell the story. But there was another gentleman from Germany, Peter, tough old bird, man, 60 some years old. Um, he was a, probably a half mile ahead of me. Mm -hmm. Um, but visibility was shit. We totally out of sight. We couldn't really see anything. And so it was later in that evening when we came together, uh, in the little village, we stayed in the school there that Peter relayed the story to me that a uh, uh, guy on a snow machine 
which is what they call snowmobiles there. They, they don't even know what a snowmobile is. Um, that's a, another thing that us as Westerners decided we'd, you know, name ourselves. But uh, they call them snow machines up there. Uh, came towards him and went around him a couple different times. And, you know, it's a, it, it's a little unnerving that everybody, that almost everybody that you see on a snow machine, at least in that section, all have high-powered rifles wrapped around them. And you're thinking, they're not just carrying those because they look sexy, yeah. you know? And so there's a little, and... But, Maybe it doesn't fit in the frame bag, though. Yeah, that, right, right. And so the, you're thinking, you're thinking, well, there's a reason that, they are, that they've got those. But uh, the trail was shit that day. It was horrible. Uh, you're just, so you're literally just shutting the brain off and keep going forward. Uh, but Peter says, eventually, you know, the guy's coming around. And you're open to all kinds of thoughts out there, right? This guy's circling around me in a snow machine two or three different times. He's got a high power. You realize, literally, if the guy had ill intent, he could freaking pop one in you and dump your ass in the Bering Sea. Nobody would ever freaking know. Right. You know? So, yeah. and, and when you're out there, you know, again, it's like the boogeyman. You know, we all know the boogeyman doesn't exist. But if you're home by yourself and it's dark and all of a sudden you hear something go knock in the basement, he's all of a sudden a little more real. Yeah, it's feasible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, eventually, the guy comes up to him. He's like, just want to make sure you're okay. And Peter's like, yeah, mostly, you know. All things considered. Trail sucks, but, you know. And he's like, well, I just want to make sure you saw that grizzly bear right there. And it's it's like within a half mile of him. I mean, we're just looking at our feet, yeah. just trying not to fall down. He didn't even know it was there. But he looks up, and there it is. It's a grizzly bear. And to our – by the time the stories had kind of gotten around, they'd never – the villagers had never seen a grizzly bear up that early. And you hit it on the head. They're only up because they're starving to death. Right. That's they're the down only reason. to sleep. That's the only reason. Yeah. Their fat stores are gone. And so. Survival. That, it's the it's the most dangerous of animals in that situation because they will take chances that go against their instinct because they're dying. Right. They have to feed. Yeah. And to compound that, the food accessibility is nil. Yeah. You're the best option, maybe. We're the best option. Sea lions, otters, yeah. whatever. They just jump in their hole that they got sitting right next to them. So you're probably not going to sneak up on them. Nah. So, I mean, we're it. Right. And to that villager's credit, we have all have spot trackers in the villages. Most of them know that the race is going on, and so they keep track because they're very kind. And so you show up in town, and typically, you know, I can tell you numerous stories where we got someplace, and the guy's like, hey, Come on up to Jim's place. He's been watching you all day. They got some moose stew in the crock pot, and they figured you'd be a little hungry. Yeah, I knew you were you coming, know? right? And you're just like, God love you. Oh, man. You know? Um, but this guy had saw that uh, that there were a couple bikers out there, and, and uh, he had seen earlier that there was a grizzly up. And so he said, you keep, uh, you keep heading west towards, I think it was Golovin or – Elam, I'm not sure. And he says, I'll push that grizzly as far as I can to the east and fired a couple shots over his head and sent that thing on the run. And But, you know, later that night, five hours later, six hours later, still not quite to the village, and you're out there all by yourself and you're walking your bike, you know, you never you never forget that that grizzly's out there. A little more keenly aware. Yeah, and it's different than the moose. There were plenty, the moose or the wolves, there are plenty of nights where you're pushing your bike and you look down and, and there's, 
you know, 20 wolf tracks over the bike that you know is within two or three hours of you. So you, you know, you're in their living room. You know that they see you. They're probably watching you right now. They might only be 30, but they don't really, they don't have a lot of interest. You know, it's not in their nature to, you don't, but a hungry grizzly bear, now you're talking about a predator. Right. And so nature is forcing him to be interested in you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's rough. So that was, uh, that was, a. That and the melting sea ice were two things that we never had to plan on because they'd never, as according to the villagers, it had never happened before in history. And um, I don't know what was more unnerving, a, a grizzly bear on the loose or being on the Yukon River wondering if the ice is going to give way underneath you. Yeah, both situations, I'm just being introduced to them. Pretty confident I don't want to deal with either yeah. one. Yeah. Ever in my life, never, never, never. Yeah, the Yukon, the Yukon River. I, <laughs> uh, I've had, I've had a couple of fist you fights with times with it. Yeah, with right. The Yukon River, but yeah, that was. Those were a couple of things, and and those are, for the most part, those are unique things that exist beyond McGrath. Right, and it is. We say it in the movie. Uh, everybody that's done that will tell you. I think John Logar says it best. One of the guys that was uh, one of the first to cross the finish line, he says, uh, you know, if you're comfortable being uncomfortable on the way to McGrath, you better get really comfortable with being really uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, I think that's about as, because when you, when you leave McGrath, man, that was, that was everything. I was I was scared. I was excited. You know, you're just that was a stretch for me. That was really heading off into the unknown. Right. That's uh that is not the beginning, but that's it's it's getting it's really really real at that point, right? Yeah. You've lost a significant portion of the people that are also on the trail with you with the same ideals. There was you know, only 12 you, of us. Right, you go from 70-ish to 12, or, you know, maybe 70 is diminished at some point, but yeah. reasonably 70 participants to 12, uh, isolation, terrain, accommodations, everything way worse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from from on the southern route, it's a, now there were mushers, and so you might see some dog teams, and, and I did a rod. It's a checkpoint, and there's a couple places. There was a place on the Yukon River, Eagle Island. It's a checkpoint. But there's a, there's a pretty good chance that on-trail human contact, you might go all the way to Nome and not see another human other than a dog racer on that trail. And, uh, and that's, that's a wonderful opportunity to really – dig in and find out what you're made of and who you are but shit man it was freaking it was i'd be lying if i and i'd say for anybody that's leaving there that doesn't have a little trepidation either they're a jedi that spent a ton of time in the wild places but i think even with that person they would say maybe i'm not scared but i will tell you this place deserves ultimate respect because it doesn't matter how tight your systems are there's still things out there that can put you down. Things are fallible. The best gear can be failed by the brute force of Mother Nature for, That's it. for some extent. You know? I came around the corner on the Yukon River. I was biking six miles an hour. Everything was mostly good. Came around the corner. 
and for whatever reason, the geography, the wind just all of a sudden was howling, and the trail was shut. And I watched a dog team go right past me a mile until they disappeared off in the distance, and I was post-holing to my knees. And, I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, in the course of 30 seconds, I went from, like, this is all right, to thinking justifiably so or not like I might just take a step here and not be able to move again you know watching that freaking guy go off in the distance and the thing I just started screaming like I was mad at everything mother nature f you you freaking my wife just losing it you know so it's just it's around every corner after you leave McGrath like to where you're just like whoa Right. Didn't see this coming. Kind of relinquishing now. What do control I Control of things at a to a great extent, right? Like yeah, you man. have to just accommodate what is presented the, to you at that point. The Iditarod Trail is like the ultimate parent. It is like the ultimate tough love parent. It says, "This is how things are done, and if you choose not to do them, I'm willing to let you pay the ultimate price." And I don't change my rules for anybody. Right. But if you if you adhere to them, I've got the biggest hug and the biggest reward possible that is out there. But but Alaska doesn't doesn't bend the rules for anybody. She's gonna give you the ground blizzard and you either know how to get out of it or you don't, but it's never going to cry uncle. It's never gonna be like, okay. You gave that a good shot. I'm just going to stop the win now. Yeah, I see like you it's came gonna, ill-prepared. I'm going to ease up on you. Yeah. Not happening, right? Yeah, it's it's going it, to – it plays by a very black and white set of rules. Yeah. So the reward, right? Culmination. Uh, achievement. Rolling into Nome. 1,991 miles into this, you know? What the hell is going through your mind? Like, is it just relief? Is it satisfaction? I would assume there's some excitement. There's maybe even some sadness that this journey is now over. You know, what? what's going through your head? Who do you see? What do you do? Do you digest? Do you just live in the moment? Approach that with me. Goosebumps, man. I mean, when you just start to talk about it, 40 miles from the finish, I almost quit. Yep. A storm blew in. Arguably the most dangerous part of the entire course is 27 miles from Nome. A place called the Blowhole, right after you come out of the Topcock Hills. I came within 30 minutes at the shelter cabin at Topcock of walking into a dead villager, a guy that had gotten stranded on his snowmobile uh, that was in the process of dying from hypothermia, was taking off his clothes, the last stages of hypothermia before he got to the shelter. He'd been stranded in this terrible storm and just, I mean, he'd be the first to tell you. By the time I got there, uh, by just the greatest gift, miracle, whatever you want to call it, a uh, a search and rescue guy that wasn't looking for him showed up at that cabin at the exact, literally the exact moment. The guy wasn't. The guy on the snowmobile wasn't going to be there for 
three minutes and then was going to go back on his way. And it just happened to be the three minutes that that guy showed up with almost very little of his clothing on. Otherwise, that guy would have just gone into the cabin, continued to take off his clothes because he was just in the final stages of hypothermia. And I would have shown up in that cabin. There would have been a naked dead villager sitting in that cabin. So the point to all of that is you're never in Nome until you're in Nome. Mm. I mean, the storm that I was in, that all of the guys were in, that were in that section at that time, uh, Bayot, who's been to Nome, I think maybe a handful of times on his feet now, uh, incredibly accomplished athlete on his feet. The wind was blowing so hard, it tipped his sled over that he was pulling behind him. Now, these sleds, sit about, the ground. These yeah. sleds sit about 19 to 20 inches off the ground. Yikes. It got so hard, it blew his sled over. I mean, it's weighted down with probably 30, 40 pounds of gear. I mean, this storm was... I mean, you could see, too, he's interviewed at the end of the movie, Dave, when he's at the finish line, and he's like, I was scared. Yeah. That's the worst storm. And this guy has been in some shit. Yeah. And so this all just talks about the emotions. So getting through the blowhole, you get into safety, which is uh, a village, and it's uh, <laughs> maybe a summer getaway. <laughs> I mean, nobody's, okay. nobody's okay. really nobody's really there in the winter, but there's a bar there, the safety roadhouse, and there's some there's some nice looking cabins, homes, sort of thing. And it, I'm sure on the Bering Sea in the summer when it's 70 degrees, it's really beautiful. And it was beautiful that day too, with the sun, when the sun came out and that sort of thing. But you get to the you get to safety, and that's why it's named that is because. If you got there and you were coming on the trail, you were past the last blowhole. And these blowholes, I mean, it can it can blow a hundred miles an hour. It uh, uh, oh my goodness, what's his first name? Last name King. He's a legendary musher. Years before leading the race, had got caught in the blowhole and the wind blowing so hard, it was blowing his team even with the trying to put his break in the ice it was blowing him and his team sideways across the sea ice and eventually was was going to blow him into the freaking bearing sea right. i mean and this is guy that been so it's a notoriously so the first emotion is you get to safety and aptly named you feel relief sure like I'm I'm probably for the first time since I left McGrath, maybe even Kinnick Lake. I'm 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 probably safe. I can take a breath. Yeah, I can take a breath. Kevin Breitenbach said something that I'll never forget. He said, "Going to Nome, there's a weight. There is a subconscious weight that is always on you. This emotional, mental, fifty-pound vest that." Even if you're in the best of moods, it's still back there. Like, until you're there, you ain't there. You bear that load. Yeah. And so it feels like it's safety. You kind of take one of those 25-pound weights of the 50 pounds, and you're like, plunk, yeah. and you let that hit the ground. Yeah. And so, and so there's that. But at that time, at least for me, 
uh, I, I, I wouldn't even consider raising the victory flag. I, I had got to a point where until I was in Nome, I wasn't in Nome. I can remember riding around Cape Nome and seeing Nome in front of me in the distance five miles away. And, and I had about 30 seconds of tears rolling down my face and smile and relief. And the training from the journey eventually was like, nope, no, you're not there. Right, task at hand again. You're not there. Back to the initial focus. Get back to work. Right. You're not a gnome until you're a gnome. Yep. So there wasn't until I could see Dave who filmed the movie and I could see the burled arch, which had, you know, I have a picture of that that is sat in front of my bike trainer for the last two years. Cause the year before I went to Nome to watch friends finish because I wanted to see what that finish line was. I wanted to take that picture and you know, when things, and when I didn't want to train and when I didn't, I'd look at that, I'd look at that burled arch and I'd think you do your work, mm-hmm. you do your work. You get to someday stand underneath that freaking arch. 44 people have stood under that arch. You, you know? And so there was that last two or three blocks where, I don't even know what that emotion is. Disbelief, pride, joy, sadness. Mm -hmm. Because you're leaving a place where life is so simple. Right. Back to the grind now, right? You're back to, you're leaving what I, I used to rage against my father when he'd say, you know, son, you better get with the real world. And I thought, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to freaking avoid it yeah, not with interested. everything I have. And for me, the real world is out there. The world without email and voicemail and all of the societal stuff that in some way, shape, or form we have to adhere to and certain rules that we have to and a lot of them are bullshit and and so there is that there is that sadness because there's just no bullshit it's like we talked about with with the trail and the ultimate parent like there's this and there's this and there's this and if you do this this is the consequence and if you do that this is the consequence right but there's no getting up in the morning and checking facebook there's no this, there's no, you only answer to yourself. Right. Right. Yep. And so that simplicity is what draws me to the wild places. It's what draws me to events like this because somewhere around day three, five, seven, nine, eleven, we keep peeling back these bullshit layers that I allow myself to acquire and through the physical, emotional stress of the event, eventually I get to a place where I get to really meet myself. Right, like genuine, right? The yeah. deep core of what is an individual, what makes now, me up. Not, yeah. No outside factors are developing me at this point. I am exclusive. Yeah, this is me. Yeah. And so now that I've got to that point, each day I get to find out more about who that person is right. 
I get to develop more skills. I get to figure out, I get to get more comfortable in the uncomfortable. Right. And so there is a sadness or a disappointment or whatever the case, because I'm leaving the laboratory. Right. 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 Yep. And, and the only way I get to find out again, what this Steve is at mile thousand ten is to go do the thousand miles again. Right. And that's just to get me to a point where I get to go back into the unknown because I've been there. It's not that it's not that those challenges won't exist and there won't be new challenges, but I've done that thousand. Now I want to know and I'm so thankful for this. And it's just because all of the great mentors and great people in my life. But after the recovery, you know, I lost 20 some pounds on that race and I started off at like 9% body fat. So there wasn't a huge amount there. And I joked that the grizzly bear probably left me alone because I was such a bag of bones That's and there was skinny. nothing, there was nothing to eat. But I remember thinking after, you know, a couple of weeks and getting a little strength back, I thought, what if the thousand miles to Nome is just scratching the surface of what I am truly capable of? And, and that's the, that's the question, right? Yeah. Right. For all of us. Right. What so what I if, do? what if, what if I just got done with this 5k that was so hard and that's where I started, right? Yeah, right. You know, I'm not, I, didn't, somewhere. I mean, my dad's, my dad or my brother or my uncle wasn't the great winter explorer. I yeah, mean, right. you might look at any of these people at the finish line, but most of them all just started by getting off the freaking couch and deciding to do a 5K, yeah, right? right? But that's the question. Like, you finished this thing that was a big deal to you, and that's all that matters. It doesn't matter. Don't compare yourself to me. I don't compare myself to somebody else. That I might, I might use those people to motivate me, but I'm interested in being the very best Steve I can be. So that's the question for all of us is, like, what's the challenge? What's the Iditarod? Now you've accomplished it. Now sit back and be proud of yourself, but then say – What's next? What am I? What am I capable of? And that's a that's the that's the question now. You know, what? Where can we? Where can we go from here? Where do so, we go from? Here? So yeah, finishing the finish line. You know, with there with Dave, there's <laughs> elation, there's joy, there's relief. It's just it's just all of these things. And and I think even to this point, sitting here at this table, when you talk about it. You know, the goosebumps still come, and I think there's still residual benefits and realizations that come from that because for me it was it was a big stretch. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and what an accomplishment, right? Like, holy cow, just numbers speak for themselves, right? Proportions of finishers, proportions of people in the world that are even willing to take this risk. You know what, uh, you know what though, dude, I think the thing for me, and it's one of the great things. If you look at everybody that got to that finish line, nobody gives a shit about whether you finished in 12 days, 14 days, 27 days, 32 days. Nobody gives a damn. They just care if you got there. Right. Nobody, you know, it's not like most finish lines that I've ever been at where people are like, did you beat the sun? Yeah. Did you, did you do this? What was did your you, time? What was your wattage? And these aren't, these aren't necessarily bad things. Sure. But, but what turns me on about the thousand miles to Nome isn't the number that turns me on is four years, four years of single-minded purpose and dedicated to a task. And anybody that that takes that mindset, 
for me, I think they're going to live a really wonderful life. And I don't care what that, I don't care what that thing is, whether it's a 5k, whether it's becoming the best parent dog walker or whatever the coffee maker, whatever the hell it is. That's the part that I love is to be able to look back and go, you know what? This is something that freaking mattered to me. It's a journey I wanted to see if I could accomplish. And I put everything that I had at my availability into it. So more than the thousand miles, more than any of those things, it was just to say, like, I set the goal, goal accomplished, mission accomplished, let's celebrate. And then let's turn that finish line into a new starting line. Right. Get back to work. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're representing the idea of the Iditarod Trail Invitational. Trying to get some things, but I think a significantly better representation of the experience that you had uh, was uh, a movie, Thousand Miles to Nome, that you and a friend, Dave Mabel, uh, Dave did the filming, maybe some of the production and such, but you two collaborated on this ideal to document not just your experience. It is not a Steve Cannon movie, right? No. It's an ITI movie. That's right. Uh, it's a, it's a features on foot. Don't call them walkers. Uh, it features on bike, you know, and, and it's an awareness of this event because admittedly, this is a fringe event. I'm into fat biking and this is a fringe event for me. If you're not into it, uh, I don't know what it is. But one thing I thought about the movie, and I want you to kind of touch on the real quick, the production of the movie, the things that went into it, the planning. Um, you know, I think it does a great job exposing people to this event in an honest. This is one of the first pieces of feedback I gave you when, when we went and saw it at the premiere. It is an honest representation. By no means does 1,000 Miles to Nome, like, say, oh, yeah, just go give it your best shot. Uh, Steve did it. ITI. You can do it. It's all easy. Blah, blah, blah. You know, it's not a it's not a welcoming scene. Uh, the deterioration of the personalities over the enti- entity of the movie. You know, you can see the rugged wear and tear that are on each individual's, uh, the hurdles that people have to get through. It's a great representation that should inspire but cautiously inspire, right? We, you know, it's a big undertaking. It's not for everyone. It's not for me. And I love fat biking. I don't mind being in the cold. It's not for me. Uh, talk about the movie. Talk about the reception of the movie. Things like that. Dave Mabel did an amazing job. And again, it's another great life lesson. You can become too freaking educated in listening to what's possible in all walks of life. We didn't know shit about making a movie. I mean, Dave had done a documentary, a really nice one on a hundred mile foot race that we put on over in Boonville. But I mean, you know, this is a full length documentary going to Alaska, him putting his life on hold for 37 days, you know, showing up in a village, getting dropped off by a bush plane with a giant backpack and not knowing where the hell he's going to stay that night. We could have done a movie just on Dave's adventure and it would have been a freaking great movie. But, <clears throat> you know, I can remember meeting with a couple different guys that have made movies and those kind of things and them saying, you know, well, 
once you get this done and how are you going to raise the money to do it and how are you going to do this? And then you got to take a year or two and you got to do post-production. You got to do all of this. And, you know, these guys got a crew of 14 guys that they're using and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, we were just dumb enough to say, we're going to make a movie. And he did. And he, and, and there were other athletes that collaborated to take their GoPros out there. And you're right. It's not, it's far from a movie about Steve Cannon. There's four, three or four other athletes that are profiled. And, man, you get to see everything. I mean, physical deterioration. You touched on it earlier. I got sick as hell in the middle of it. And there's a there's a scene there where I stand up and all I've got is my long underwear on. And, man, there's just nothing left to me. And so it, it's. I think it is a really honest depiction of what goes on out there. Uh, but then Dave came home and, I mean, edited this thing out and, you know, this isn't me saying it. We we applied to four different film festivals, and we just heard back from one of them, and we've been accepted into a uh, a pretty prestigious documentary-only film festival. So, I mean, he hit the mark. Olive and, branches. Yeah, olive branches, man. And and so all credit to Dave and, and the other athletes that uh, took time because, you know, we were just talking about the struggles of taking a 10-second photo on a bikepacking trip when the sun's shining out in Colorado you know, think about, you already think it sucks getting up the happy steps. And now you're going to be like, okay, because this sucks, people should really want to see it. So I'm going to set up my camera gear. Right. And I'm going to film me going up the happy steps. And then when I get up the happy steps, I got to walk back down to get my film gear and take it back up. You know, so these, these athletes that took the time to film this stuff, man, complete kudos to them. Um, and the movie's been incredibly well received. Um, we actually uh, did some stuff with fatbike.com to, to kick it off right off the bat, which we were grateful for to get it out there. And uh, and I think there's a lot of reasons why it's been really well received, and we've touched on a lot of them. You know, if you are in that fringe, I can remember watching a movie about the Alaska Iditarod Invitational called The Thin White Line on Vimeo that was done maybe 10, 12 years ago by a few guys. And Jay, Dave and I joked about this, like, if we just – don't get in the way a movie about a thousand mile race in Alaska. Like you don't have to oversell that speaks for itself. You know, there's 27 different reality TV shows on TV about Alaska. Yeah. There's an appetite for the wild places. And I think it speaks to the fact that at our, at our core, we're all adventurers. Maybe some of them have been covered up by a lifetime of chasing 401 K's, but uh, at our heart, all of us look at these kind of movies and it touches something very, very deep in all of us. And um, so, yeah, we're, we're incredibly proud of the movie and it was um, what Dave accomplished and uh, extraordinary. Yeah, I, I really I went with my wife to Des Moines to watch the, I think, overall premiere of yeah. the movie and uh, both of us just really impressed by the execution and the uh, message, so to speak, of the movie, uh, the ups and downs, the things like that. Really, really, really enjoyed it, you know, uh, barring my relationship with you and acknowledging some of my fringe interests, but it it was for sure a really good documentary. Thank you. Um, 
So one, you know, a couple things I want to touch on before I let you go, uh, which I never want to do. I could talk to you forever, uh, but uh, you had your bike, all the gear at the movie premiere. Uh, noticeable, noticeable on the all over the bike are what appear to be little scribbles right off the bat, uh, but actually are names of cancer survivors and non-survivors that you have. Uh, dedicated some of your, I don't know what the word is, influence or or people's awareness of you or something towards uh, cancer survivors, cancer non-survivors. What does that mean to you um, to impact that? Even if we determine that it's to a small amount, you know, it's a noble thing, I would say, to support that. Uh, what kind of got you on board where you were like, I not only have this big task, but I need to represent an even greater ideal, maybe? For me, it's repaying a debt. So when I decided to run across Iowa, uh, I was afraid that I would quit. So I thought, I'll do it to raise money. The thought being when it gets hard, be uh, be more difficult to quit if you had to, you know, stop the fundraising efforts and do all of those kind of things. And so at the time, Lance Armstrong was kicking ass on the bicycle. Uh, he's a hero of mine, always will be for the awareness he created of the bicycle. And I know there's other stories to be told, but truth is we all have plenty of skeletons in our closet. He, you know, big stars have bright lights put on them but regardless of all of that I thought the yellow bracelet was cool and I you know we all have a cancer story everybody has somebody in their life probably a handful of people in their life that uh, felt the impact have felt the impact right so the night before I go off uh, to start that journey across Iowa guy and his wife pull me aside and they go the shit you're doing matters man we uh we buried our nine-year-old son just a few days ago so, you know, selfishly, I, I was using the yellow bracelet as a means to not quit a race. Right. Uh, and raise some, raise some bucks. But we sat down that night and they shared stories with me. And, and so, for me, that was life-changing. That was the moment where I was like, okay, this is an opportunity to take what I love, the exploration of human potentiality and use it to do some good and so I have been fortunate to receive all the gifts of cancer without ever having to be hooked up to the damn machine and so I feel like I owe for that Um, so the scribbles on the bike are names of people still living and people that have lost uh, their battle um, through the different things that we talked about Briefly here, um, we've raised close to $750,000. And so I continue um, to try and repay uh, that debt of, you know, those people teach us, those who have won the fight and those that have lost the fight, that the timer's ticking, man, for all of us, you know, that tomorrow's not a given. Right. And I'm far from perfect. And, you know, I take my share of naps and uh, I don't I don't perform at my best every minute of the day. But 
I do get up every day knowing that today is a gift and I go to bed burying the guy that spent today um, and hopeful that I get to get up tomorrow and take another swing at that. And I wouldn't have that mindset were it not for the people that have inspired me through this whole journey and those people in the cancer community. So um, those are the name on the bike and people that I honor. And unfortunately, um, I'm running out of bike space because, you know, get you another bike it just, uh, just to put names on if we want. It just keeps, uh, it just keeps, it just keeps adding. But, you know, there's no denying that we've made incredible strides. Um, and, and, you know, I have a sister that's still alive probably because of the early advances in detection and all of those kind of things. And, you know, I'm a great friend of ours, Lynn from yeah, Emporia yeah, is, uh, you know, coming good, out, fighting the fight, right. Coming out the back end right now and looks like she's going to be great. And so yep. these things all matter. And so those are the names on the bike and most definitely. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, it's a wonderful awareness of impact, impact yeah. potential. Yeah. I mean, going to Nome, tribute, going you know? to Nome, raised 10 or $15,000. Right. Great vehicle for it. Continues to, continues to do so. So it's a great marriage. Yeah, I, uh, I, f- I felt like we needed to at least touch on that, you know, because it's an impact, right? This is, uh, this is a give back uh, sort of thing, right? And that's a good thing Absolutely. just to be aware of. Um, so uh, real quickly, because admittedly this is uh, self-promotion to a certain degree, uh, people outside of the fat snow world, you also ride fat bikes on gravel, on mountain, on paved trails, let's say. You ride, that's what you ride, fat bike, period. Uh, and you had a race, a gravel race, uh, 24 hours of coming in coming Iowa. Uh, it's usually the beginning of August. Always is the beginning of Always August. Always is the beginning of August. Five years old? I'll go with that. My roughly. Memories, my memories. Yeah, roughly. It's somewhere in there. Um, I used to run a gravel bike shop. Uh, that's all we did. Uh, we specialized in gravel in Emporia, Kansas, the heart of gravel. It's, I mean, it's the gravel capital of the world, right? It's Dirty true. cans. It's where to be. Undisputable. Undisputable, in my opinion. Uh, great races throughout the country, no, no doubts. Doubt. But no doubt. gravel is Emporia. It is formed by that. Uh, had a gravel shop. We got to connect a lot more there. You came down for some events. Uh, we'd, we'd cross paths, and this 24 hours of coming uh, idea or or event gets brought up. And, and I'm kind of intrigued. You know, it's a uh, real quick, just to frame it, to touch on what you talked about. We're interested in the best version of you. So that race offers a 100K option, a 200K option. And the Mac Daddy is a 400K. It's like 242 miles. 244.8. Yeah. Uh, this year, route, about 18,000 feet of climbing in the 248. No joke. Definitively, no joke. Coming Iowa, the terrain they have there, this is Iowa. It ain't flat. People think it's flat. It ain't flat. And the gravel is gnarly. But the views can be spectacular. Uh, that, that's a progression event. So I'm immediately intrigued. So you actually got me on as just kind of a sponsor, uh, looking for some bike shop representation. Gravel City's coming up from Emporia to Cumming, Iowa, attaching to this event, really feeling good about things. That relationship has progressed 
two years of sponsorship. And then last year you offered me and afforded me an opportunity to, to technically co-promote that event. Uh, and if people know me, I have uh, certain standards in things. And not to insinuate at all that 24 hours of coming was deficient in any way, but I get visions in my head and I just have to just have to achieve. Right. And and so we've kind of continued to progress that uh, 200 riders last year, which doesn't sound like a ton. We're talking about the scope of 2500 at Dirty Kanza, but that's what we're looking for. Self-progression, community, social atmosphere. But it's gravel. Um how did you you did a running race to uh, Boonville Backroads Ultra? Um, what inspired Inception of Twenty Four Hours of Coming? What led you to allow me to have anything to do with this event? And and touch on more. You know, if you don't know what gravel is, look it up. Uh, it's everywhere now. It's prevalent in bike shops. No joke. A uh, lot of advancement there. But tell me about, like, community and how the feeling, that atmosphere of community is prevalent and can be prevalent in enjoyment of bicycles. Because gravel seems to be like the, the road we can all agree on, right? It, you know what I mean? It's less of, it, like, roadies don't find it offensive. Mountain bikers don't find it offensive. Fat bikers can still do it on their fat bikes. It's pretty accommodating for people. There's all kinds of distances. It's right out the back door for a lot of people. It's accessible. There's not a lot of cars. It's pretty legit, you know. It, it's a good meeting place for the minds, right? So, so how does 24 hours of coming fit into your ideals of what atmosphere and community in cycling, specifically this event, but eh, kind of as a maybe a lead into things and other events that you took inspiration from and stuff like that, you know? Well, I think you created a hell of a t-shirt, gravel a road we can all agree on. Gravel a road we can all agree on. That's legit. I love <laughs> that. The race, whether the Boonville back roads, which the signature of event within the offerings that we have there, 10K, 50K, 100K, and 100 miler. In, and then the same thing that you just described with 24 hours of coming is <clears throat> the ultra world. And again, keep in mind, for me, ultra began with a 5K run in Boulder, Colorado, I may have been the only non-spandex-wearing guy in the whole crowd. And at the two-mile mark, I would have left the course and never returned if it wasn't for the fact that there were spectators all along. So when I say ultra, that's a very personal thing. Frame it. That's a personal thing for everybody. Right. Whatever stretches you is ultra. Agreed. But that that has provided me the ability to become whatever it is that I have become to this point in my life. And so... I wanted to create an event in 24 hours upcoming that would let people take that same journey, provide them a place where hopefully we do a good enough job in the supporting of it that they feel comfortable to come out there and bear their soul, if you will, on the gravel to go like, man, 62 miles, 100K. Whew. Yeah, rough. And, and, you know, and then 
while you're there on that 100K, you finish that 100K and you get to watch somebody go out to do another lap. Right. And you're pretty certain that there's no amount of money in the planet <laughs> that's gonna that could get you now to go out and do that second lap. Yep. But your eyes have been open to the possibility. It's like we talked before. Right. Somebody's doing it. Right. I can do this. I'm if in the they middle can of do the this, I can do this. I'm in the middle of the I did her on trail. Man, man, what was me? What was me? You know, and then the ghost of I did Rod's past shows up in a big wool jacket and, you know, boots nowhere near as good. And he's like, yeah, not, I did it. It's not really that tough, dude. Yeah, we can do it. We, You can get there. Yeah, like, get there. You know, and so. Buckle down. So that event gives you the opportunity not only to test yourself, but to then also see what is possible. We are the same species. Right. So there's nothing extraordinary about that dude or girl lady that just went 400K. She drinks her coffee the same way I drink my coffee. So it is at least feasible, even though my mind is screaming at me, don't you even think about that shit. Right. That it is possible. Yeah. Right? And so that is such a wonderful give back to be able to sit there at the finish line and see someone come across that distance that for them is a new PR distance. And again, there is that feeling of community. It's not to say that everybody in the gravel community doesn't, you know, is just kumbaya. I don't care about my time. There's people that are there to race. Race it hard. And you know that, but, but, the part that is really the turn on for me is the person that is there that doesn't necessarily have a racing athletic background that is just like, you know what? I'm going to throw myself into the fire. I'm going to see what this can become, uh, see what I can accomplish, see what I'm capable of. And to see those people finish that, finish any one of those distances and that sort of like, I didn't know. Yeah. If I could make it at mile 40, if the guy in the pickup would have offered me a seat, I probably would have taken it. Or maybe he did offer me a seat and I thought about it right. and I thought, nah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang in. Yeah. And so that's the 24 hours of coming. It's 200 people. I don't think, you know, we've discussed this. I think 200, 250 is as big as we're ever going to have it because we really want to provide that. And that's not to say bigger races don't provide it. It's just this is what we want to do. We're, we want to become uh, as good a race as possible. As kind of, again, it's an extension of becoming the best individual you can be. Let's become the best race that this can be. Forget about comparison. Dirty Kanza inspires me. me but I'm too. not going to compare myself to it. I'm not going to put on a race that 200 people come and then go, you know what? I'm only one-tenth of a good race promoter because my race doesn't have 2,500 right. people. Screw that. Yeah, I'm not right? even aspiring to be like that, really. I acknowledge I its prevalency, and I have mad respect, you know, personally. Sure. Just utmost respect for the execution and the individuals Absolutely. involved with something like Dirty Kanza. Absolutely. Here, we there, everywhere, it. you know. Love them. Absolutely love them and respect them. All of these races have something to teach us. Right. If we're looking and in what our goal is to become the best race, right? And then that touches on your second question, which is why the hell do I bring in Adam Blake and offer him <laughs> a seat at the table? The reason is because I'd gone as far as my expertise would allow me to go. And so 
I looked around and I wanted to bring in a guy that I respected, a guy that had abilities to bring in other people, other people with expertise, companies that might not even answer the phone, or I might have to make 20 calls. Well, it took you 30 seconds to make this call and make this. And you, so, so the, you know, none of us accomplish anything worth a damn on our own. Right. Even the village, even somebody that's like, whatever it is, you know, I soloed this. There's still a huge team behind that person. Wife, husband, daughter, trainer, nutritionist, all of these kind of things. 24 hours of coming was as good as I was going to be able to make it. And so now it's better. Because we have you involved and you've been involved in the industry. You've been involved in giant races, the dirty cons, all of those kind of things. So, you know, our thrust from day one is not to become, not to be the best race, but to provide the best race atmosphere possible, build community, um, be someplace that people come hang out for a weekend. And, oh, by the way, there's a race. Right. I think that the uh that attitude uh was unspokenly agreed upon even from our first interaction about that we had no idea what the depth of our my involvement or this or that but the understanding of that attitude was something we shared and it was immediately recognized like oh this person values what i value in this experience you know to me agreed yeah all right uh so Man, I really could talk to you for just like hours, you know. This is so, it's just so good. And uh, a couple things I want to touch on, ways to reach out to Steve. We've got social media. You've got some websites under a couple names that we haven't even talked about, Expand Your Possible, things like that. Where do people uh, acquire the books, which we didn't even get into? Uh, There are books, folks. Steve has written books. It's just wild. Experiences in the Yukon, uh, running around Lake Superior, just to touch on the topics of these, you know. Uh, Where do you get the movie? How do we contact Steve? We just want to say, what up, Steve? You know, social media, who do you follow? Last part of that, who do you really dig on on the the gram or the Facebook or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's the the beauty of social media is that there's – no shortage you know i can get on there today and it can be someone that i don't even know talking about the fact that they've been sober for 27 years most definitely and i'm like i'm motivated near and dear to both of us i can get on there and it can be somebody that's like you know what i've been raising my kids i was athletic when i was 25 years old i haven't been i just signed up for the race around the lake it's a 5k yep. like i'm freaking motivated right and right. and in a lot of ways i'm more motivated by those stories now look man i'm a huge fan of david goggins um if you've read his i was a huge fan when all i knew was just this superhuman dude that's doing the world pull-up record and he's doing this and he's doing that and he's cussing like crazy i tend to trust people that cuss more than people that don't cuss because I just don't think they give a shit. And so this is who I am, and I'm a big fan of anybody that has that 
this is who I am and like it or not like it, but this is what you get. Yeah. So I was a big fan then, but I listened to his book and he comes from a broken family. I come from a family that dealt with divorce and, and, and you know, substance abuse. I've dealt with that and those kind of things. And so I'm, I'm, I'm super, uh, inspired by the mega accomplishments, but more so I think, you know, the person that's just willing to step out for the first time, man, that's real courage. So there's kind of a long winded answer to who I'm turned on by as far as following me. If you think that that's worth any of your time, it is, um, you go to expandyourpossible.com and everything's there. We didn't even get a chance to touch on the fact that, uh, I'm leaving in about five days. I've got a bus and I'm going to spend an entire year on the road traveling and again trying to find out more about who I am and see what other things there are to this life than just the nine to five and so but any of that you know you asked about books or movies or this or just want to say what's up which I freaking love because we all get a chance then to just you know you are the people you surround yourself with and if you're talking with people that uh, you know are on the move and and challenging themselves but so but the answer to all of those questions is expandyourpossible.com. You can sign up there to get notifications. We'll be doing stuff all the time, like on the road, and we're in Telluride, or we're in here, and this is what's up, and this is what's up. So expandyourpossible.com, and you get it all. Instagram handle, anything like that you want to throw out? You go to expandyourpossible.com. Leads you to everything. That's where to go. Leads you to everything. The resource. That's it. Uh, Yeah, man. You know, you just touched on all the things that we didn't even touch on. And, and if I could talk to you for five hours, there'd be things we didn't touch on. I'd be a lucky and I am, man. A def, I am most definitely not ruling out part two of this, of this engagement. Even if it's on the road, I'll come find you. We'll do this in the bus, baby. It's pretty comfy. I could think of nothing better than you and Gomez being like, hey, we'll meet you and tell you ride. I'll be there, buddy. Uh, I am on Instagram, amblake fifty. Uh, I don't post very often, but I got complained at recently, so I'm trying to up my social media game. I'm Adam Blake on Facebook. Just feel free to, to reach out to me. Uh, generally, you can also find me at World of Bikes, a uh, bike shop in Iowa City, Iowa. Uh, their social media, uh, unfortunately for them and us, has me on it too. Uh, but definitively, you want more of this. You want fat bike information. You want to just hear some some other podcasts, get your feet wet with this, fatbike.com. End all, be all, number one in my opinion, biased, acknowledged, don't care, number one source for fat bike information. Agreed. Period. Uh, thank you all. Uh, Gomez is here. We just kept him quiet. Steve, love you, brother. Love thank you, you so much. Thank you, Gomez. Just wonderful, my pleasure. You know, truly to have you in my house. Well, this is in our kitchen. Me and my wife's kitchen. We're having coffee. We're talking. You know, uh, expect that from this podcast. Tune in. Keep up to date. Have a great day. Love you guys. Uh, stay on a fat bike. Thank you.